0: Hey, we have another guest speaker. Not a guest speaker. We have an in-house speaker. Is that, is that better? In-house? And I just know today's going to be phenomenal because he's been preparing this message for like four weeks. He's been out of town for like four weeks. He just like went away just to prepare this message. So Dana Buck is going to be sharing with us this morning. Can you give it up for him? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, good morning, everybody. Um, Pika, you got a light day today, man. All you had to do his announcements, and the one about the underwear was awesome. Who knew your announcements could be so brief? <laughs> and I suppose if you don't bring underwear, you're part of the boxer rebellion. That's all I got. That's all. Oh, okay. I should have stuck with a brief one. Uh, speaking, so yeah. So I've been gone. Uh, speaking of announcements, can you tell where I've been? Where it's at Sunny. Yeah, ooh. Um, But speaking of announcements, so I watched, the the live stream's awesome, because you can, you know, watch and see what's going on, and I knew I was going to be following Bakhtiar, and Bakhtiar and I are going to be, really, it's it's kind of a complimentary, we talked about this kind of complimentary piece of scripture that we're going to, I'm going to share about that he shared about as well and got us started. And so... um, but in the beginning, I saw Pastor Kevin's announcements, and he's, he was talking about the lineup and who's going to be speaking. And he said, you know, Dana Buck, where is that guy? Is he even still alive or something like that? And uh, I was reminded of, you know, Mark Twain, the famous author, was traveling once somewhere overseas, and somebody in, you know, in a paper in New York got a hold of some rumor that Mark Twain had died. And so they published it in the papers. Mark Twain dies. And somebody showed that to Mark Twain. He was like in Rome or something. He said, hey, look, you're dead. And... Uh, Twain wrote back to the, to the newspaper, and he said, the reports of my demise were greatly exaggerated. That was his. So the reports of my demise have been greatly exaggerated. Um, but yeah, it was a long trip. I actually left uh, Saturday, uh, September 28th. I drove down to Portland for an event that I did with uh, So Powerful, which I'll talk a little bit of, uh, more about. It kind of leads into what I want to share. And uh, we had a big booth down there sharing at a quilt at a show. And uh, packed up the stuff that was in the booth and put it in the car and then drove on down. And I spent two weeks on the Central Coast in California, which was just absolute chase summer for another couple of weeks. It wasn't summer up here. I, I was just looking at my weather app, hmm, rain. And then I'm walking in the sunshine. It was pretty nice. Did a couple of weeks there. But before I came home, I drove up to Santa Clara. And I was at the Santa Clara Convention Center for a week because there was a So Powerful event there. Now, most of you know what So Powerful is. It's one of our missions organizations that we support. We just did our offering for them. But in case you don't, I'll just give you just the the thumbnail sketch. But So Powerful is focused around this little school in Lusaka, Zambia, in the worst slum in that city. 1,500 children attend this little school. It's a community school, which means it gets no support from the government. It's basically created and done... Um, by the community, Jason, Miles, and I stumbled across that little school in 2009 when we were on a trip to um, we're on a trip to Zambia with World Vision. We both work for World Vision. Jason and his wife Cinnamon have their own sewing business, which is uh, God be praised is doing incredibly well. Um, Jason remembered that school had been supporting that school financially. Jason and Cinnamon all these years. They endowed So Powerful as a 501c3 official charity and uh, now is focused on the children and families in that community. And one of the big focuses of So Powerful and why we were at a sewing show in both Portland and in Santa Clara is one of the realities for girls, especially in that context is, and we're all grown ups here, most of us, so we're going to talk about this, the girls have no way to manage their period. They have no supplies, and even if they had supplies, they couldn't afford to buy them. Disposable doesn't work in the developing world, and so what do the girls do when they're on their period? They stay home from school. And you can imagine if it was your child, what would happen to your child's uh, scholastic performance if they missed up to a week, a month of school? Right at a time when girls especially need to test, all kids need to test, to see whether they can go on in their education. About the eighth grade year, they have to pass a test. If they don't pass that test, they don't go on to school. If they don't go on to school, the odds of them being trafficked, HIV positive, pregnant, early married or exploited in some way, just skyrockets. If they stay in school, all those numbers go the other way. It is a pivotal time, and at that pivotal time, girls without those supplies um, miss a week of school a month. It's just, a, it's just a, one of those unfair things that girls deal with in the developing world. So one of our goals through what we do is so powerful is to level that playing field. And what we do is we invite seamstresses in the United States, but also all around the world because these, um, well, what I'll tell you about it is we invite them to sew a beautiful little crossbody purse. And a lot of you guys have seen that because we collect them here at the church. That purse is shipped to Zambia, where we have a team of African seamstresses that sew reusable hygiene pads for girls, which is the way in the developing world you provide those supplies for girls. It is the best way to do it. Those reusable hygiene pads go into that purse along with soap and underwear, and then they're given to school-age girls um, so that those girls take a pledge, and they basically say, with this purse and these supplies, I will stay in school all month long. It seems like such a little simple thing to us, but to those girls, it actually is, it changes their lives. And when they receive these purses, and these purses are amazing and they're beautiful, um, the girls will basically say, I've never had anything in my life this nice. I keep it in my room. I keep my treasures in it. I mean, it's a really, really special transaction that happens. So we've gone to these shows because... What a great audience. These are international quilt shows, and most of the people that attend are women, and just about all those women sew. And so what we want them to do is to hear the story about what we're doing and join us. And the invitation is sew a purse for a girl. Um, Sew a purse, give it to us, we'll send it to Zambia, and then we explain all the wonderful things that happen. There's now, there's a Facebook group that has grown around this idea of sewing purses for girls. It has 3,300 Members in that Facebook group again, these are women all around the world. Uh, when I was in the booth in Santa Clara, one lady Cindy came, and I had to go with her to her car because she had three huge plastic bags she 'd sewed a hundred purses for girls to drop to drop off in the booth and I tossed those in my car and drove them back up um, when we came up so it is, a, it is a wonderful thing, and RCC is right in the middle of that in fact on November 13th, we're going to have our big unboxing party, which means we're going to take all the purses and we're going to pray over them. We're going to put them in plastic. We're going to put them in packing boxes and get them ready to go to Zambia. 12,500 is the goal. 12,500 girls that will have an opportunity um, for their education and for their future. When we started this five years ago, we got 500 purses. It's now 12,500. So anyway, awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, why do I talk about that? Well, let me tell you, I love it, but there's another reason why I talk about that. So when you're in this booth, we really do the shifts, and this thing is open from 10 in the morning till six at night, so it's a long time. People are coming through constantly, constantly. And when you're in the booth, it's cool, but it's also a little difficult because you are saying the same thing over and over and over to everyone that walks by. You just keep repeating that, and so we have a flyer that kind of has our information and whatever, and we invite them in. and The and the booth is awesome because we've loaded it with the purses. The purses are hanging on all the walls, and they're gorgeous. And so a lot of these people are seamstresses, and so, you know they, they're interested and they want to see it. And so they they come in, and you tell them just the same story I told you. You tell them the story. Here's what we do, and here's what we invite you to do. Be a part. Join with us, and be a part of this. No, I'll be honest, some people are like, you know, I want to go to booth 17 and I don't want to stop here. No, thank you. And they walk on and you just say goodbye. And um, some people, you could tell they're leaning, right? They're listening, but they're leaning because they want to keep going and they're polite and you give them the thing. But, and I'm going to say this, more often than not, you have a busy person that's there that's, you know, wanting to go to see a certain booth or learn a certain thing or whatever. And you begin to tell them the story and they lock in with you. And what you have said to them that you're doing and what you're inviting them to be a part of suddenly becomes intensively real. And you begin to have these, this deep, in the midst of all of this, you begin to have this deep conversation. And they'll basically say, my girlfriends are over here. Let me go get my girlfriends. They have to hear this. Um, they'll come into the booth. I've had women tear up and cry. They say, you're going to make me cry right now. I'm getting goosebumps right now. They come up, they touch the purses, they want to hear more about it. We have pictures in the booth of the girls um, with their purses and they have samples of the hygiene supplies that they can look at and see. And it's, the, the greatest part of it is is when you have those conversations because these people just lock in with you and you know you've gone right to their heart and you've touched their heart. And all of a sudden they want to be a part of this. Can I get some extra ones? I want to take it to my guild. I wanted this, I wanna that. Um, we invite every seamstress that sends in a purse to write a note to the girl that's going to receive that purse, and that goes in there. You can show them samples of the notes and tell them stories. Luckily, we've had a chance to be there. PK and I and Krista and Jason and Cinnamon were just there in May, and we saw the girls get their purses and we saw the girls, you know, open them up and see what was in them and read their notes, and it is awesome. And this transaction that you have, you, you I, I always feel. So privileged, and let me tell you why. Because, and I had this experience many times at World Vision as well, inviting people to love the poor. Because when you love the poor, when you do something for someone who can never pay you back, you encounter the heart of God. When you do something for someone who can never repay you, you encounter the heart of God, whether you know it or not. Let that sink in for a minute. Because I know what's happening in that booth and in that conversation. Some people that come by are faith-based. They ask, they said, when I write my note, can I put a Bible verse on it? Can I put a prayer in there? Absolutely. So they feel called, like they understand that this is a call from Christ on their life to do this. But I would say this, most people don't. But that same reaction, the tears, the goosebumps, the desire to know more and hear more, the desire to be a part of it is just as deep as the people who see it as a call from God. Why is that? It's because when you're called and invited and take a step to do something who can never, someone can never repay you, you touch the heart of God. And when you touch the heart of God, you're changed, whether you know it or not. Isn't that awesome? That's what, that's what we do. But let me just say this, and this leads me into what I want to speak about this morning. That is not confined to a booth in the Santa Clara Convention Center um, in the Bay Area. That is our lives every day. Bakhtiar did such a good job talking about James uh, 3, uh, 16 and 17. 16 is kind of the depressing part of that package. It talks about there is a wisdom and Bokhtar did such a good job contrasting them. There's a wisdom that comes from the world. And even James even called it demonic. He used a pretty, he used a pretty strong word when he talked about that. And he used a couple of terms. James used a couple of words to describe that wisdom. He said, it is filled with bitter envy and selfish ambition. Bitter envy and selfish ambition. And when you think about that, bitter envy and selfish am- ambition means everything is pointed to me. I want it. I don't have it, and I want it. You have it, and I'm not happy about that, right? Selfish ambition. I want to climb up and over, and I don't really care who I step on when I climb up and over. And I may do it with a smile, and I may do it with a snarl, but bitter envy and selfish ambition. And so there's this wisdom that is earthly wisdom that is basically incredibly self-centered, incredibly centered on us. And then, thank goodness, there is chapter 17. And that's called, that, that section of scripture describes the wisdom that comes from heaven. I love that phrase. The wisdom that comes from heaven. So James contrasts this. And he sort of talks about the negative first. And then he talks about the positive. And here's what he says. And this is James three seventeen, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. Then peace loving. Consider it submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Let me read that one more time. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. I find it really interesting that James talks about the wisdom that comes from heaven. And then he goes and says is, and what he goes on to do is describe personal attributes. Think about that. Things that we would perceive in another and things that others would perceive about us. Considerate, submissive, full of mercy, impartial, sincere. These are all attributes. These are all personal attributes. It's not like James basically gives this list that sends you off to a mountaintop to sequester yourself and ponder it. Because he basically is what he's saying here is if you want to experience the wisdom of heaven, you better be involved with somebody. Because those things only manifest when you're with somebody. Think about that. If you want the wisdom of heaven, you need to interact. You need to be available. You need to be out there. I love it when pieces of scripture that are disparate come together and complement each other let me read you another piece of scripture and I'm going to I'm actually not going to read the scripture I'm going to tell you the story but I'll tell you where it is I encourage you to read it later if you want to this is in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37 and this is Jesus and Jesus is with some Pharisees and the Pharisees are still trying to figure him out they're a little, they haven't quite hated him yet eventually they will Um, but they're still just trying to figure him out, and they're trying to challenge him a little bit. And one Pharisee comes to him, and he says, what is the most important commandment? A lot of us know this story. What does Jesus say? The most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind. And he eventually says strength in another one. Not in that one, not in Matthew, obviously. Strength is left out for some reason. But heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What Pharisee, what anybody could argue with that? But Jesus gives the guy a little bit more than he bargained for. Because Jesus says, and the second one is like it. Anybody know? Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, in these two commandments, all the others are fulfilled. Jesus made it real easy. The Pharisees like to make it hard. The Pharisees had this complicated thing about the rules and this, and you can't carry, and you can't work, and blah, 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 and you got to sacrifice, and this or that. And their complication was their, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It was like their legitimacy. It's so complicated that you need us Pharisees to help you figure it out. Well, Jesus sort of blew their gig apart. He goes, I just remember these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor yourself. You're good. Pharisees weren't too happy about that. That That's one reason why Jesus wasn't very popular with the Pharisees. So when you look at that, and Jesus said, and the first commandment is, and the second commandment is like the first. It's like, okay, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And now the second one is like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. If I'm going to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I'm going to love my neighbor as I love myself. That's how I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength is I love my neighbors as myself. Jesus didn't give them an opportunity to bifurcate that, to take that apart. Well, I'm pretty good with that love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength thing, but that love your neighbors as yourself, not so hot on that idea. Jesus didn't even give them that opportunity. The second is like the first, and he put them together. There's another piece of scripture where Jesus is talking, and this is Luke 10, 25. If you want to write that down, Luke 10, 25. And a guy comes up to him, and he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And after a little, Jesus is saying, well, you know, it's in the Scriptures. And the guy goes, where? And so Jesus says, well, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, and, and, love your neighbor as yourself. So this guy was saying, how, how do I be saved? How do I go to heaven? How do I, you know, how do I do this? And he tells him the same thing he told the Pharisee. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I don't know how comfortable that guy was with that answer. Um, maybe the first part, but I don't know about the second part. I like to sort of imagine, like, sometimes you read Scripture, and you don't really know, like, what the emotions were of the person that was speaking. I sort of like to think that this guy wasn't real crazy about the neighbor part, right? Because he has a follow-up question for Jesus. Anybody know what the follow-up question is? What does it say louder? He goes, who's my neighbor? <laughs> hmm, well, You know, rabbis tell me this. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Ooh, who, well, so he's looking for wiggle room, I think. Like, who's my, well, who's my neighbor? You know, if I can, maybe, I, maybe there's somewhere I can find my comfort level in there. And Jesus answers him. Anybody know how he answers him? Tells the story of the Good Samaritan. That was his reply. The story of the Good Samaritan, one of Jesus' greatest parables. One of the problems with our society today as we've, you know, and the, the, the story of the Good Samaritan surmounts the Bible, amen? I mean, people tell that story all the time. In fact, a lot of people, if you just asked them on the street corner, they probably wouldn't even know it was a Bible story. They just, because this idea of being a Good Samaritan, there's even an RV club called the Good Sam Club, right? You ever see their little things? And there's a guy with a halo around his head with a big smile. And I guess, it mean, you know, you're Good Sam, you're a Good Samaritan. So we've sort of taken that idea of a good Samaritan helping people in need, and we've taken it out of the context of what even Jesus said. And we've sort of turned it into this story of, you know, being merciful, like stopping to help somebody that's in trouble. And that was certainly a part of the story. But the main thing that Jesus was communicating in that story were the characters that he put in it. Because the two main characters in that story were a Jew and a Samaritan, two people in their culture who could not have hated each other more. Jews referred to Samaritans as the despised Samaritan. That was always the prefix whenever you were describing a Samaritan. There were not two people who were more despised, mostly the Jews, to the Samaritans than the Jews and the Samaritans. And yet Jesus not only chose to make them the center of his story, but he made the Samaritan, the despised Samaritan, the hero. Do you know how radical that was to the people that heard that? And for the guy who's looking for comfort in asking the question, who's my neighbor, he didn't get it because he was Jewish. And you're basically saying that's who my neighbor is. That's who I have to love like myself, not just tolerate, not just put up with, but love, and not just love, but love as if it were myself, my own family, the things that I love. But Jesus didn't leave any wiggle room. The the wisdom that comes from heaven pure, peace loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. The peace that comes from heaven, or the wisdom, excuse me, the wisdom that comes from heaven is endowed to allow us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Can you see how they're just put together? They're just so nicely, nicely tucked together. So one of the things about Scripture as you read your Bible, especially in the New Testament, is you'll find in, in Peter, in the writings of Peter, in the writings of Paul, in the Gospels, in the book of James, there are different sections of Scripture that list these attributes. And they're, and they're very different. Paul in Galatians talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Peter talks about this. These lists of attributes that if we're walking in the Spirit and we're walking basically in the wisdom that comes from heaven, these are the attributes that our life will, um, will produce. And these are the attributes that will be, be produced in the lives of others. You know, one of the things that Bakhtiar said, because I watched his whole message on the live stream, that was really important is he said One of the reasons that these lists are there is for us to test, is for us to test ourselves. And man, that's a tough one, but when we have an attitude, when we have something we're thinking about, when we look at a relationship, a situation or whatever, it is is this list that we're to go through to say, is this the wisdom of heaven or is this the wisdom of the earth? Is this selfish ambition and, and, uh, and bitter envy? Or is this the wisdom of heaven? That's why those lists are there. For us to do self-evaluation, but for us also to do evaluation into the relationships and situations and whatever that we enter into. Is that we enter into those with wisdom. And the wisdom is that we we have this measuring stick that the Bible has given us. Is it these things? Is it considerate? Is it sincere? Is it pure? Is it those things? And if it isn't, you know, then we need to to apply that wisdom to whatever that situation or that relationship is. Now, James does something in his list that's really kind of interesting. Personally, I like it a lot. He inserts a metaphor right in the middle of his list. Now, what is a metaphor? A metaphor is nothing more than descriptive words, a descriptive phrase, a noun, whatever, that, that describes a concept or an idea. Because here's what James does. So he's listening to stuff. He says, pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit. All those other words I sort of get, right, in context. And then he goes on, impartial, sincere, peace-loving. But he says, good fruit. And all of a sudden, James drops this metaphor right in the middle of this list. Now, I often wonder, because I don't know the order that these books were written in, but Paul had written very famously to the Galatians in chapter 5, the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against these things there is no law. What a list. That's a good list to memorize, by the way, in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. What a great list to measure yourself and, and, and situations against. Now... Did James was James aware of the Paul's letter to the Galatians, and so when he put good fruit in his in his letter, that he was confirming what Paul said, or was James in the sort of in the same space as he was thinking about this? Because why did Paul use the metaphor? Why did James use the metaphor? They're try, He's trying to help. They're both trying to help their reader their listener, because what would happen is these letters most people couldn't read or write, right? So somebody that could was reading these letters, um, you know, to to the people, and they wanted them to understand clearly what they were talking about. And both men, either separately or together, used this idea of fruit as an example. Now, what is it about fruit that makes that a good example? When, When you think about knowledge, I always like to think about, man, when you think about knowledge, you think about a tree that's firmly planted and is well, um, is well watered, and there's nutrients in the soil, and that tree is growing strong and pure and good, and then life bursts from that tree. But I also find it interesting that neither James nor Paul said, let your life be full of good leaves, because those burst from trees, Right? So healthy, right? The trees got, you know, the, uh, the roots are healthy and up through the trunk and whatever. And then life is the evidence of that. Evidence of a healthy tree is really good leaves, right? I'm raking a ton of them out of my yard every, seems like every day right now that are, you know, and then next spring we'll have a whole fresh crop from those healthy trees that are in my neighbor's yard. Not even my yard, but I rake his leaves. <laughs> but, the, but the leaves are the evidence of a healthy tree, but yet neither James nor Paul Chose leaves as their metaphor. They chose fruit. Why did they choose fruit? Well, I think I have an idea. There are some things that are true about fruit, um, the fruit of the Spirit, that are also true about the fruit of the trees. Let me give you four good fruit is available. It may be hanging on a tree, it may be gorgeous, luscious, ripe, but if you can't get it, it doesn't do you any good. In fact, eventually it's just going to ripen, rot, fall to the ground and rot. Good fruit needs to be available. Good fruit needs to be shared. Otherwise, how do you even know it's good, right? Good fruit needs to be available. Think about that in terms of physical fruit. Think about that in terms of the wisdom of heaven the fruit of your life, the fruit of your spirit. Good fruit needs to be available. Good fruit needs to be genuine. Have you ever seen like wax fruit or whatever? I mean, sometimes, man, you can pick it up and it's like, you think it's real and pick it up and it's not. My mom, my mom used to have a bowl of wooden fruit. I think she got it in Hawaii, uh, that used to sit on our table, and we had this, bin it was all carved up. Uh, it wasn't much good for eating or whatever. It made great missiles. My brother and I used to throw it at each other <laughs> all the time, especially the banana, because you could kind of, you know, wing it like a, like a, what do you call it, a boomerang, right? But that fruit, although it was cute and carved and looked nice and whatever, that fruit wasn't going to nourish anybody. That fruit wasn't going to do really anybody any good. It looked good. It's a great decoration. But as fruit, it wasn't very useful wasn't very useful. Good fruit is genuine. Good fruit refreshes and nourishes. My wife and I, when we lived in California, we lived in uh, Victorville, which some of you guys may know or not know, but it's high desert. And uh, my parents lived there as well. And so I remember one day, Grace and I both had the day off. And we thought, let's walk, you know, it's a beautiful day. Let's walk to mom and dad's house. Let's just walk down there and maybe we'll, you know, have lunch with them or whatever. And I don't think we'd ever walked to their house before. And so we're walking and, you know, in the desert, it can, you know, at 9 o'clock in the morning, it's pretty nice. At about, you know, 10, it gets to 10, 11, it gets hot and whatever. And I'll never forget thinking this was a really bad idea <laughs> because they lived in this walled community That So as the crow flies, it wasn't very far, but you had to walk all the way around the wall. Kevin's been there, remember that? You had to drive that one long road where the the wall finally ended. So it was a long walk, and the more we're walking, I'm just tired, and I'm thirsty, and I'm thinking this is the stupidest thing I've ever thought of. And we walk around this one part of the wall, and the neighbor inside the wall had an Asian pear tree. And, you know, I don't like pears, but Asian pears... So, Every here ever had an Asian pear? Oh my gosh, because they crunch, they eat like an apple, but they taste like a pear, and they're so sweet, and they're so juicy. And I'll never forget, we walk and I see this tree, and it's hanging over the wall, and it's full of fruit, and it's ripe. And we stopped, and we plucked two or three of those Asian pears, and we ate those Asian pears, and I, I have never in my life, before or since, tasted fruit that was so good as those Asian pears. Good fruit refreshes. Good fruit nourishes. Good fruit brings life. Good fruit reproduces itself. Inside of every piece of fruit, if it's an avocado, there's just one great big seed. Inside, other for kiwis, you know, you got a million of those little ones you're always picking out of your teeth, but no matter what kind of fruit it is, it has the ability to reproduce itself. And most fruit in the ability to reproduce itself in great numbers. Good fruit Reproduces itself. Think about that for physical fruit. Think about that for the fruit of the spirit. It reproduces itself. As much as I love a metaphor, a parable is nothing but a really long metaphor. (laughs) So I have a story that I'd like to read you guys to close. And this story is called Orchards. One day a man with bulging pack walked down a country road striding hard with every step beneath his heavy load. Beads of sweat collect and run along his back and neck while shoes display the markings of his long, exhausting trek. Short of water, out of food, his prime concern is plain. Find a place of solace while his will and strength remain. As the road surmounts a hill, he pauses in his going, For the sight that meets his eyes gets all his juices flowing. Lying there before him in a valley deep and green, endless rows of orchards, more than he has ever seen. He can well imagine what is found upon those trees, fruits of every kind, they're waiting in the sun and breeze. Hitching up his backpack and then quickening his pace, the prospect of refreshment smooths the creases on his face. An hour or so of walking brings him near his journey's end, and suddenly he pauses as he rounds the final bend. The road he has so briskly walked divides before his sight, one part leading to the left, the other curving right. Puzzled, he says to the wind, which is the right direction, squinting now to give each road a more detailed inspection. The roadway to the left is wide, compacted, and complete, favored, judging by the marks of many passing feet. Looking to the right, he sees not much more than a path, simpler than the other road and narrower by half. Both pass through the orchards, now the focus of his march, so he makes a quick decision, for he's feeling dry and parched. If most commuters' journey left, as thus it seems to be, who am I to question it? That's good enough for me. And so he spurns the narrow trail with scarce a moment's nod and hurries to the well-walked road, accessible and broad, well, soon he's reached an orchard, Tis the first along his way, he sees the luscious dangling fruit upon the trees that sway. Dreaming of delicious bites, full-bodied, sweet, and dense, it's then to his surprise he spies the cruel barbed wire fence. He's agitated, overwrought, frustrated, and confounded, for he sees the orchard is quite thoroughly surrounded. No gate provides an entry, just a sign somebody drew, proclaiming categorically, keep out, and this means you. All that wondrous produce, growing ripe and hanging there, never to be harvested, delighted in, or shared. What a waste, he murmurs, such a profitless abode, and shrugging tired shoulders, he continues down the road. After walking on a while, another plot he finds. This one has no wire fence or big unfriendly sign. Trees are fully loaded. Every groaning branch and limb, fruit of every shape and kind, invite and draw him in. Standing there amongst the rows, his mind's about to burst, thinking which delicious fruit he will devour first. Reaching for a purple plum, he then receives a shock The fruit is fastened to the tree and solid as a rock. Scanning all the hanging fare, each peach and apricot is tied with string or wire and suspended from a knot. Looking closer, he can see the fruit that looks so good is really only counterfeit and made of wax or wood. Everything is phony, bitterly the man concedes. All of it is fake and fraud and heartlessly misleads. With a huff, he then departs, while silently he cursed, feeling more intensively his hunger and his thirst. Once again, exhausting steps have brought him to a field. The trees are unfamiliar, yet are filled with fruit to yield. Here, a wispy, cloying mist hangs heavy on the ground. He hears no birds or animals, nor any other sound. Strolling toward this ample grove, his eyes intensely rose, searching for the false or fake. He'd seen enough of those. The closer he approached, it seemed, the better all appeared. In fact, he felt a rush of pure elation as he neared. Back he arched his straining neck as wonder fills his eyes. Ripened produce beckons him and seems to hypnotize. Reaching up to pluck an orb, he freezes in the act when he sees two staring eyes so fixed and piercing black. Time appears suspended as his primal fears awake, for perched upon a gnarled limb, he recognized the snake. Rigid with intensity, The serpent plies its gaze as if to will this harvest and seduce what it surveys. And though he's filled with loathing, no retreat the traveler makes. Desire for the fruit, it seems, surmounts his fear of snakes. But before his ready fingers can confirm this deadly fact, he suddenly steps on a thing that makes a startling crack. The mist has thinned and opened, where it laid inert and prone, revealing what he'd tread upon, was bleached and brittle bone. The man then looked around him, and his words could not be found, for this tantalizing orchard was a field of lifeless mounds, forms of other travelers who'd come in vain pursuit, lying where they'd fallen, holding old, half-eaten fruit. Grabbing his attention in a mesmerizing hiss, the snake coils round a pomegranate. Surely you want this. Stumbling in horror, leaving apple, pear, and plum, the man flees from the serpent and ran back the way he'd come. Proverbs 14:12 tells us, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. Panic and adrenaline both fuel his churning strides and soon he's reached the intersection where the road divides. Pausing in fatigue, he puts his hands upon his knees then hears a faint, hello there, wafting to him on the breeze. From the narrow pathway comes a woman bent and gray pushing in her handcart a remarkable display. Oranges, so perfect, Tangerines, their charming shapes. Lemons, peaches, watermelon, cantaloupe, and grapes. Such an awesome bounty, such a fine and fetching load. She stops and sets her handcart where he tarries on the road. Young man, you look exhausted from your cowlick to your boots. Surely you should rest a while and have a piece of fruit. Nodding in his gratitude, they moved into the shade where he subdued his appetite while she made lemonade. And as he ate, she spoke to him as if he were her boy. He asked her name, and she replied, Good sir, my name is Joy. I thank you for the fruit, he said. Hunger is a curse. He reached into his bulging pack and then removed his purse. You have no need for coins, she smiled. There's nothing to repay, The gardener will replace, and more, the fruit I give away. Puzzled, he replaced his bag and looked at his heavy load. This gardener that you speak of, is he found down yonder road? He is indeed, she answered him. It's quite a pleasant hike, and I will walk along and introduce you, if you like. Yes, he said excitedly. The words came from his heart. Walking to the road, he said, Please let me push your cart. Happily, she answered. There was mischief in her tone. I have a hunch that soon you'll need a handcart of your own. The wisdom that comes from heaven is full of good fruit. Good fruit is available, it's genuine. What else is it? (laughs) It nourishes. (laughs) Forgot my own metaphor. It nourishes and it reproduces itself. It's available. It's genuine. It nourishes and it reproduces itself. May we go from this place in the wisdom of heaven and be full of good fruit. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. Have a great day.